0: A reading from Genesis. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Arminian of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Arminian. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time came to give birth when the time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord.
1: chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin of, and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned a sin in the flesh For this reason, the mind, is set on the, fle- the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through this spirit that dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus went out and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Hear then As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. A little unplanned, but worth mentioning. Sometimes it's really delightful when, despite our preparations, things get printed in the bulletin wrong. Uh, Because it kind of reminds us that life in church is like life outside of church full of things that just sort of happen. Um, and, and I want to suggest, actually, that there's some holiness to that life, and I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to consider today when we hear this parable. You know, um, parables are things that scholars will tell us uh, are pretty unique to Jesus. That is, at the time of Jesus, uh, a lot of what Jesus teaches about following God and morality, a lot of that was being said by other rabbis of the day. However, other rabbis of the day were not telling parables quite like Jesus was. Uh, everybody's used analogies. Everybody has, right? Understanding one thing helps you understand another. There's one way to read the parables as analogic reasoning, but I want to suggest it breaks down really fast. And, 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 and this one seems so basic, you know. I think because um, we've got Jesus telling it, we've got him interpreting it, and then there's the interpretation that, that many of us have grown up with. It just seems so logical until you press on it a little bit. So. So if you're willing, that's what I'd like to do, is review those, press on it a little bit, and see if it could take us somewhere maybe different and more life-giving. So if this is an analogy, there's a sower sowing seed, and there's four kinds of soil. You know, the way I grew up with it, this is God, right? God's the sower, and this is the word of God being distributed on different soils, and of course, that would have to be us right? So the question really about the story is what kind of soil are you? Are you the hard path and when you hear the word of God, the evil one snatches it away so that no life is grown in you? Well, if so, don't be that. Don't don't be that guy or girl. Okay, maybe you're the soil that's full of, um, you don't have a lot of depth to you. I mean, of course, nobody like would everyone who would admit to being that soil type, right? I'm a very shallow person full of rocks. What does God have for me? Um, nobody really wants to be that. So again, if you are, don't be that person because you'll, um, you'll, you'll spring up with joy, but when there's persecution, you'll fall away. And, 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 and actually, I mean, even though we don't want to be that kind of soil, there's this irony that I was raised in a climate that tried to get us away from the lures and temptations of the world, like living in Christian communities and reading Christian yellow pages where we only had Christian contractors doing Christian plumbing. You may not have known there's a difference between plumbing and Christian plumbing. Let me tell you, Christian plumbing is better. (laughs) And you should only hire those Christian plumbers because a regular plumber might persecute you uh, not just with part of their body that they show you, um, but with the bill. I, I, I don't I really know what this means, but they might persecute you and you might lose your joy in following God. So you should only be around Christian plumbers and Christian shaved ice makers. Um, so Sir so, sort of grew up with that one. And then there's this third soil type, right, where there's, there's the worries of the world and the pursuit of wealth. And, and I'm really glad... You know, and I'm pretty sure this is true of you, too. I never think about money. I I never think about my kids' education and what's best for them. I don't think about career advancement. I know none of you think about that either. So I live in this really thorn-free world. You know, it's delightful. Uh, Those things will choke your faith, right? This is what we were told. And then there's this last bit, right? about being good soil that reproduces and and frankly if you know anything about gardening and i don't know a lot but it's pretty rare that once i mean you know this hundredfold yield is like a pretty big deal that's it's kind of a lot of pressure um to be this good soil is who you want to be and evidence that you're good soil is that you're getting other people to be good soil. So if you've been here, you've heard me say this before, this was why I went to laundromats and tried to convert people to Christianity because I needed to convert 30 people <laughs> to be a good soil. 29 is not mentioned by Jesus, you know, so you better get to the laundromat again. Um, now, the thing about this is maybe it's true. Maybe this is how it is. But if you, if, even if you hear Jesus' interpretation he never tells you really how to go about converting from one soil type to another, does he? I mean, in some ways, the, the, the wooden analogy here is that you just are one of these or you're not. And Jesus doesn't say what to do if you're thorny soil. And, and soil is not particularly good at converting itself. Have you ever thought about this? Right? I mean, rocky soil is not very good. I mean the dirt does not do a good job telling the rocks they need to just move away, thank you, or break down. That requires usually some kind of outside intervention, right? And 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 the problem other problem about making this just an analogy, right, is again, especially in church or or, or in my case, youth group or or, or college ministry, If somebody were to say, now, which one are you today? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Nobody's looking, I promise. Which one of you are the road? You know, we're we're Satan's eating the seed. How many of you are the road? (laughs) Which one of you are being choked by concerns of the world? Because if you are, we won't judge you harshly except for only in our hearts. Anybody out there? (laughs) I hope you get what I'm saying here, right? And in some ways, the way I grew up hearing the story analogically, right, is that this story was all about, frankly, whether you'd receive Jesus or not. It it was boiled down to one thing. And and, and honestly, I think there might be a lot more to it. Like I've already said, how does soil convert itself? Then there's this other question. Again, I'm not a farmer. But if you stop and think about this, If the seeds that are being sown are good, why is the sower throwing them in places they can't grow? Why would you take good seed and throw it out in the asphalt? I mean, wouldn't that be a waste? Surely any farmer knows Seeds don't grow in asphalt and they don't grow well in rocky soil and they don't grow in a thorn patch. I mean, to go out with wheat and throw a bunch of wheat seeds into a blackberry briar patch, it's like incompetent farming at best, right? So, so it makes you wonder, okay, well, if God's the sower, why is God doing that? Is it... this is is actually a really good question, right? Is it because God has so many unlimited resources that God can waste them? Or or, or maybe it is that um, things seem wasteful to us that that aren't, in fact, wasteful to God. In fact, it, it makes me start to think in my own life that I'm not one of these soil types. In fact, I'm all of them. And I dramatically rotate soil unexpectedly. Let me ask you, anybody ever been extremely hard-hearted? There was no way you were going to let grace in in a relationship, in an idea. And then it surprised you? You ever been surprised by grace in a place where you wouldn't even tolerate it? If God's the sower, maybe that's actually a pretty good use of the seed. Maybe, maybe it's not that wasteful, you know? Of course, Jesus did not say God's the sower. Maybe we are. Maybe we're sowers. Seems to me like we sure do sow all kinds of messages every day. You know, everybody we interact with, we're in some ways, I guess, sowing a seed that's gonna grow one way or another. And Jesus never says the sower is sowing good seed. I don't always sow good seed, do you? Man, I've sown some thorns and weeds in the lives of people who I happen to dearly love. Have you? Wonder, another way of thinking about this is for us to consider the kind of seeds we're sowing and in the kind of places we've decided it's worth sowing. After all, in a world of limited resources, I only have so much good to sow, so why would I waste it on people that I think are thorny? Why would I waste good seed on people that I think are pathways to be walked all over? Why would I invest in that? I wonder if Jesus isn't asking us to reconsider our investments. Maybe, maybe in God's economy, investing love is never wasted, just in our own. And that makes me think that there's a lot of different ways to read this old story about Jacob and Esau. You know, um, this is one of the tough things about being an Episcopalian. Honestly, we read more scripture than any other tradition I've been a part of that doesn't use the lectionary. You know, we read four stories a week. The the problem with us is that the people who put this together presume that we've already read the whole Bible and we're just highlighting bits we already know, right? So many of us don't, don't, don't realize what happens after this story or what happened before the story, how Isaac met Rebekah. Right, and how Rebecca left her parents against their will to be married to Isaac. And we, we, we don't always realize that after Jacob steals the birthright from his brother, he goes on to steal the blessing from his father. Right? The lectionary pretends you already know that. If you don't, it's okay. We'll highlight what's happening in this story. All that to say, though, is that the context, the arc of the narrative becomes really, really helpful. Uh, I'm going to try to connect that a little bit uh, for us today. Because really, this is kind of a weird story, And, and honestly, I think there's a lot of ways to hear it. One way we could hear the story, I mean, a child who's born hairy as a mantle. In case you're wondering, that means the baby has as much hair as an adult goat. So, like, that's Rosemary's baby. You know, I mean, this is just not going to be great. And by the way, that's not even possible. Children are not born hairy all over like goats. And now that I'm telling this, you might say, wow, I really didn't care for the story before, and now you give me less reason to think about it. I mean, this is like mythological thinking here. Um, One way to hear the story is just sort of like, because you were subjected to it, you're here, is that this is a seed on the road. And again, who cares? This is old and weird. All life is gone. You know, another way to hear the story, quite honestly, and, and, and... I think it would be pretty shallow of us to hear it this way, although I'm positive the story is doing this. The story is saying that there were two nations inside of one common source. And and historically, there's the people of Israel and the people of Edom. And they were so similar, they believed they had a common origin. But sure enough, they thought each other were heretics can you imagine? It's like they came from one original church and they split into two and they each hated the other one. That's never happened, right? Ever. So, so, so that's what they thought was happening. And sure enough, this story explains why. So another good way to read the story, I mean, not a good way, another way to read the story is, oh, this is one of those origin stories and it says why we hate those other people. Good story. <laughs> now we know why we hate you. <laughs> it would be a pretty shallow way to read, though don't you think, wouldn't really be a lot of root or life in that particular rendition. It seems like there's a little bit of thorny concerns in this story, and maybe it's worth hearing, you know, the birthright. We don't really use that word very often anymore because we don't really have these rules, but you know, up until uh, 150 years ago, the way this has worked in most of the world is that the firstborn son gets 90% of the inheritance. Now, I know you're going to say, Mike, sometimes in the Bible it says double portion. You need to know double portion means 90%. It doesn't mean 66 and two-thirds percent. The firstborn boy gets 90% of the stuff. The residual 10% goes to the secondborn boy. Boys 3 through 17 get zero. All girls get zero. So here's what's at stake in the story. Esau gets 90% of the stuff, and Jacob gets 10%. And that makes Jacob feel really angry. I probably would feel angry too. Do consider that this was happening in the Middle Ages, right? The firstborn son was the one that you tried to make a ruler. The secondborn son was the one you tried to make a bishop. Henry VIII was the second-born son. He was to be a bishop. His older brother died. Then we had the Episcopal Church. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So, Esau is going to get all this stuff, and Jacob is not going to get very much. It's almost like Jacob knows it in the womb because he is fighting before he's even born to become something he can never be. He's fighting to be born first. He does his darndest to be born first. He's born, again, this has to be figurative, right? This would not be a good delivery to have one twin born holding the other one's heel. He does everything he can to be born first. And of course, what we know is that once somebody's born first, they just are. In this story, Jacob is choked by the worries of the world. And in fact, as we read the rest of the stories, Jacob spends most of his life trying to be somebody he never can be. He tries to be the firstborn son and he was born second. I think it's a really good story because you know, there are times that I have spent years of my life trying to become something I never can be. You ever done that? If I looked a certain way, or if I'd done this other decision, or maybe if I'd had different parents, or whatever it is, I'd be happy if, if I made more money, or if I if I had this better athletic success, or or whatever it is, I'd be happy then. If I had better piety, you know, if I was a better Christian, I'd be happier. That's a real choking kind of faith it's a real choking kind of situation I want to say it's pretty real I don't think this story is that, is that far from the truth interestingly enough Esau just means red Red. Jacob means heel grabber but um, heel grabber is like one of those idiomatic phrases heel grabber means thief um, robber used car salesman, mattress salesman. So this is what he gets when he's born. Oh, look, firstborn hairy boy. We'll call you Red, and your brother, he's so cute, we'll call him Thief. <laughs> it's interesting that, that the Jewish people, right, this is their story. Their, their founding most important patriarch, Jacob, is a thief. There's something else really interesting about this story that I think is very real and easy to gloss over. You know, when you read it, depending on your age, you know, there's either this resonation or revulsion to it. Esau's the oldest son, so of course he's going to get the bulk of the goods, but he doesn't just get the promise of stuff. His father loves him more. And his mother loves Jacob more, right? Now, this is very real, I think, for any kid who has a sibling. And maybe you asked your parents as a child, which one of us do you love more? And what did your parents tell you? We love you the same. And of course, in your head, you said, tell me the truth. (laughs) These parents, when asked, when Jacob said, Dad, who do you love more? Oh, Esau, that's an easy one. (laughs) Mom, who do you love more? Uh, Jacob, you're hairy. It's nice to know that biblical families are dysfunctional too, like not just ours, right? But I think it also invites this interesting thing to think about, you know? Um, And and it's only occurred to me, when John Newton was here, we we went out after, after and we were talking about this, you know? There's this thing in life that becomes really interesting, We have this word, love, and it means, well, it's not even hard to say what it means, because it means so much, right? And then there's this other thing that's really difficult called attraction, and I I don't just mean between, you know, two people. I mean, there's people in our lives that we're just attracted to, to be our friends. You know, I've taught students before in a high school math class, and I just was... There was like this a- a- attraction to get to know certain ones better than others. You, you don't understand what I'm talking about. I- I'm talking about something tr- strictly platonic, right? There's just people you find yourself drawn to. And sometimes you stop and you can't even understand why. Some of those people we find ourselves attracted to subvert our values. But for whatever reason, there's, there's this attraction, you know? And, a- and in some ways, you know, reflecting on families, I, I think that probably is pretty natural and true. There, there is attraction we have between one parent or another at varying times of our lives that we can't always explain. And I think it's true with siblings, and I think it can even be true with children. But I do think there is something very different between who we feel drawn to and the love that we practice. And maybe that's part of what the story is asking us to engage, because the truth is attraction and love are not the same things. Attraction is a feeling that we can't really control. you ever tried changing who you're attracted to? Good luck on that one. Have you ever tried deepening the way you practice love with other people? If you have, then you've, you've taken marital vows, right? Because that's where you pledge, no matter how I feel, we're going to be together in sickness and in health, right? That's what I'm going to try to do to you, whether I feel it or not. I'm going to be committed to you. Jacob's parents, like many of us, might have had attraction and love confused. They might have thought they were the same thing. That's a good reminder that that's a thorny way to live. Confusing attraction and love. Maybe coming back again to God the sower is that God sows good seed even in patches that God's not attracted to. And that love might be just like that. And it makes me think that in a world with limited resources, you know, I mean, there's only so much silver, there's even less gold and less platinum and even less iridium, right? Most things seem to work in the limited resource mentality. I wonder if, for Jacob, love is a limited commodity. There's only so much in the world, so I have to get all I can get before it's gone. All the reading that I've done and the experience I've had though, says the contrary about love and empathy and compassion. It sort of says that the more we give away, the more that we have the more people we practice love with and are deeply rooted in and invested in, the more we find ourselves able to continue to invest, not only in those uh, those people, but in new and other people. And it got me thinking that maybe that's what it's like to practice living in the good soil. The good soil is about this abundance. This abundance that doesn't wear down. In fact, sowing the one seed brings other ones back. Platinum doesn't work like that. You give it away and it's gone. Compassion and love and faith and hope. They seem to work like that, though. They seem to. Now, I know this has been a little bit weird. And the truth is, The exciting thing about scripture for me, right, is that there really isn't just one way to read it and one great point that we're supposed to live into, like some God-planned analogy, but that there seem to be multiple levels and multiple realities represented, some for us to learn from by not doing, and some for us to grow and be rooted in. And of course, what we all know is that even in the middle of all of this complexity and diversity, there are some really terrible ways to read the Bible. We know this really well from the abolitionist movement in the 1800s. The lion's share of people in the South were convinced that because slavery was in the Bible, it was biblical and right. And of course, the people who resisted used scripture as well to say slavery is wrong. You know what I mean? The interesting thing is, it doesn't just have to be slavery or the women's rights movement. You can find the Bible to say whatever you want. And that's where I think the parable of the sower becomes so, so interesting. The criterion is not whether you're right or erudite or logical criterion in the parable of the sower is whether or not it produces abundant life for other people. Now, logically, owning slaves sure produced a lot of resources for the people who owned them. But it did not produce abundance of life for everybody. Racial inequity in the American South sure produced life for some people at the expense of other people. I don't think that's the abundant life Jesus is thinking of. Jacob stealing the birthright from his brother, and by the way, you just have to imagine, everybody knows Esau's born first, so how is Jacob ever going to be the firstborn? I mean, did did Esau wear a sash that said, I'm the firstborn, and then Jacob started wearing the sash, and people said now that he's got the sash, he's the firstborn? I mean, this plan cannot possibly work. Jacob's committed to it because he's following this illusion about getting life at the expense. There's only enough. There's only enough for some. I've got to get as much as I can. Did it give him life? Maybe, it's really even questionable if it did, but only at the expense of his brother. I'm pretty sure that's thorny soil. I'm pretty positive it is not the fertile ground Jesus is talking about. And it makes me think, having grown up basically worshiping the Bible instead of worshiping Jesus, that maybe this is Jesus giving us an interpretive key the moment of when we're confused as to where God would have us to go, the answer is to choose life. To choose abundant life. Not just for ourselves and for the people we know, but for the world. The truth is, we do that moment to moment. The question is, can we be converted in our hearts so that we crave feeding the world? Because after all, the world's a hungry place. God's got unlimited seed, but God sure needs a place to throw it and to grow it. And our invitation, I think, is to grow
1: with God.